Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy. What's up, Hi. <laughs> You're expecting more accolades, right? <laughs> well, usually you say, like, Darcy joining me from the other side or something like that. So, like, there's just usually more. <laughs> no, I want to keep you on your toes. I got it. I am on my toes. <laughs> How's it going for you right now? It, Are you in, on, in the middle, full-blown Christmas break going on there? I just started my Christmas break. Um, I came back to Birmingham yesterday. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so I'm really excited to put schoolwork away for a while and just I have like a bunch of books that I need to, I want to get through. And uh, Speaking of books that you need to get through, you have sent book, me the new one. Yes, I sent you, but I wanted to know if you wanted a hard copy or if you'd um, rather have it on Kindle. Kindle. Okay, so I can get that for you. Okay, yay! But just for the listeners that don't know, I just wrote a true crime book, and it's called A Shot in the Dark. You can get it on Amazon, but it just in a nutshell, it's a story about a young woman who is a podcaster who works in her mother's bakery, and it's just kind of ho-hum having this average ordinary existence when this young pretty doctor comes into town to kind of change things and she disappears oh and so this results in a whole kind of investigation thing and her family descends on the town and the cops don't want to get involved and don't want to help and so they're trying to figure out how they can find this missing woman without police help so it's um, my first true crime novel and my fourth book in total. And so far, um, it's been selling really well. So I'm kind of surprised. Yay. Like I said, I have four books out, and it's the best selling so far. Like in the first, I released it, I believe, last week. And it's already sold more than all four put together. So oh my gosh, that's awesome. I'm really excited. So um, I already came up with a couple of ideas for like second and third books in yes. a series so that they can all, there can be like a true crime series um, yes. that we can talk about. So um, who, who better to write a story about true crime than a true crime podcaster? Right. And she's a podcaster in the story. So nice. <laughs> I just thought it was really fun and interesting. So well, hopefully it doesn't become autobiographical. Don't go missing on me. No, no. But again, it's called A Shot in the Dark and you can get it on Amazon. Author Sarah Rush. So go check it out. Go check it out. Um, Okay, so before we jump into the main case for the day, I have a couple of interesting little side notes. Um, One of them is COVID related, and I know that there's a ton of COVID stuff flying around out there right now, but I thought this was kind of an interesting thing. And the title of the article is Some COVID-19 Survivors Are Experiencing Phantom Foul Smells After Recovery. Have you heard about this? I had not heard. So I know one of the symptoms was losing your sense of smell. Yeah. But so now you're getting phantom smells. When you get it back, some of the people that are recovering from it will smell weird, random things. So, But experts first recognized that the loss of smell was a common symptom of COVID-19 in late March. But for an increasing number of survivors, that reaction is simply a precursor to another more excruciating phenomenon, they're saying, which is in the region of the brain that is responsible for identifying smells, and it's failing to properly rebound in some of the patients that are recovering, and it results in distorted smells or phantom smells. And are they always foul smells? Like you don't get to smell anything sweet? No. Most of them that are sucks. foul. So in more than eight, there was an 800-person support group that was created on this on Facebook for COVID-19 survivors. They started describing what they called a depressing battle with smells. And they said it's been about three months since they recovered from the COVID-19. This is one of the victims um, or one of the, the sufferers. And they had multiple symptoms, including loss of smell and taste. But a few days ago, she started smelling burnt toast. And one someone else on this group said they smelled permanent this permanent smell of gasoline like all the time oh my gosh so a separate private facebook group titled covid uh support group for the people that are losing the smell and having these phantom smells has almost five thousand members (gasps) and the interviews with they talked about this with yahoo life more than 20 COVID-19 patients from support groups describe distorted smells such as peanut butter smelling like mold, as well as phantom smells like dog poop in the house of a survivor who doesn't have a canine. Oh my gosh. So How miserable. It just sounds awful. And the Mayo Clinic defines this phant- 
phantosima as an olfactory hallucination that makes you smell different things that aren't actually present in your environment. So it's like, it's a very distorted sort of a thing and it's linked to damage to the olfactory system, which can happen in the wake of things like sinus infections and other respiratory illnesses. And scientists really aren't sure exactly why this happens, but it sounds just absolutely bonkers. Yeah. And like, your sense of smell is so closely tied to your sense of taste. Yes. That, like, I, I can't these people just can't enjoy food anymore. No, no. So they studied more than 4,000 patients with smell changes, and 7% reported distorted smells, and 6% resp- reported phantom smells. Wow. So it's not a huge portion of the people that are recovering, but enough to be like, wow, this is super interesting. Yeah. And it typically only follows the cases where people lose their sense of smell. So if you have COVID and you didn't lose your sense of smell, then you probably wouldn't be having this issue either. But it sounds super crazy. Yeah. Wow. So doctors say that the symptoms like this are likely a sign that the brain has not fully recovered, Mm. leading to error messages in the olfactory region. So it's extremely uncomfortable, they say. But the changes could ultimately be a good thing. They appear to be related to a stage in recovery where smell loss is a positive sign in long-term recovery. Mm Mm-hmm. So in non-COVID studies, this particular phenomena has an average duration of 12 months from the time of infection, but they're seeing encouraging reports saying that patients are recovering in about eight to nine months after COVID. So it, right so now they think it might be temporary. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that kind of makes sense because like if you have an injury where you have nerve damage, yeah. when those nerves are repairing, it's really, really sensitive and really painful. So like Sometimes it kind of crisscross. That could be, yeah. yeah, it could be like a recovery thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Super like bizarre. And I can't imagine it. I've had instances after having like a bad sinus infection or like a bad cold where I kind of experienced that as well. Like things like common things like peanut butter or like something that should have a very distinctive normal smell. Um, smell weird, like mold or really? like, they, they're stinky. And I also heard somewhere, and I don't have an article for this one, but I heard that one of the precursors for early onset dementia or Alzheimer's is you cannot smell out of one nostril or you cannot smell things like peanut butter or you smell like burnt toast when you smell peanut butter. Like there's kind huh. of a, a crisscross in your brain that when you smell like peanut butter out of one nostril and it comes up as distorted, that that could be an early precursor of like Alzheimer's. Interesting. Cause I know like smelling burnt toast is a sign of a stroke too. Yeah. Isn't that weird? That's so, so bizarre. Crazy. But don't freak out people. If you smell burnt toast or whatever, and you're not experiencing any other symptoms, right? don't, don't rush to your doctor. <laughs> right. But if you, you may are have just burnt toast. Yeah. I mean, if you are concerned and you are smelling that and you're noticing it go see your doctor, don't mm-hmm. mess around with that. That's not a laughing matter. I mean, it seems like it's kind of crazy and funny, but like, if you're it sounds miserable. Yeah. If you're experiencing that long term, go see your doctor and try right. to figure out what's going on with that. So I heard something, I just saw it on Twitter about COVID too. And this is this is crazy. And I'm hoping it's just temporary until we learn more about what co- exactly COVID is doing. But this is a tweet from uh, Cassie Y4, and she is an ICU nurse. And she says that she hung out with an organ donor network nurse. And uh, they were just kind of exchanging stories because the organ donor network nurse doesn't see any COVID action um, and just wanted to know what that's like. And apparently this organ donor network nurse said that you cannot donate organs if you've ever had COVID. Wow. And I've never heard that. It's yeah. And and, I mean, I haven't looked it up. I don't know if this is like anywhere in the news or anything like that, but you know, I guess it's just one of those things where they don't know what COVID does long term to the internal organs. Yeah. So they don't want to and transplant that into somebody who didn't have COVID or anything like that. Right. Um, so right now they're just saying like you can't donate at all. But well, I think given the fact that now they're finding that some patients with COVID ha- are having organ failure later yeah. Yeah. Um, down the line, they want to prevent, you know, somebody from maybe not knowing that they're about to have that donating an organ and then it failing on somebody else, which right. would just be awful. And given how many people have had COVID, like that's going to severely affect the organ donations yeah. and the people that need transplants like next year and in the following years. Like that's just. There's already a huge shortage. So yeah. I can imagine that that's going to be good for that situation either. Yeah. So hopefully that's a temporary thing as we learn more about it. But man, 
It's just like the things that it affects down the road are just so scary. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we'll keep you posted when we hear updates about that. But um, I have another update on Ghislaine as well. If everyone's sick of hearing about this woman (laughs) already. But we talked about how she was in her jail cell and they were checking on her every 15 minutes or so. And Mm -hmm. it was keeping her awake and she wasn't given a toothbrush or whatever when she was Mm -hmm. in there. But um, evidently, according to news outlets, she has been trying to get bail for Christmas before Christmas so she can spend it with her family or whatever, her husband. But I saw this other article that's Ghislaine Maxwell was in the process of divorcing her husband, prosecution claims, as it slams the fresh bid for bail. So Ghislaine Maxwell was in the process of divorcing her husband at the time she was arrested by the FBI, the U.S. government is now claiming. Um, in response to her plea for bail. Miss Maxwell, 58, filed a fresh appeal to New York judge on Monday, which was this last week, in an attempt to be freed from prison before Christmas. Her husband... So she's saying she wanted to spend the holidays with her husband. Yes, yes. Oh, I so see. So okay. her husband, understood by the, te- by the Telegraph to be tech CEO Scott Borgerson, put up more than $22 million in security, saying in a letter to the judge that Miss Ghislaine Maxwell was a wonderful and loving person, which is interesting. This guy's hmm. 44. Again, he's a tech CEO. They're claiming she's not a flight risk, as the government has claimed, because she has strong ties to the U.S. and a family life with Mr. Borgerson. <laughs> but However, she's divorcing him. That's what the prosecution claims. Mm -hmm. Um, they're responding by saying that they were actually divorcing, which undermines her assertion that her marriage is a tie that would keep her in the U S but $22 million is a lot of freaking money to put up and surrender willingly if she decides to flee. Right. Right. But she's claiming her marriage would keep her in the U S and her motion doesn't address the plainly inconsistent statement she made to the pretrial services at the time of her arrest when she said she was in the process of divorcing her husband. She literally said, said that in her pretrial papers. So now it's she's... So I don't, it's her word against her word. Yeah. <laughs> I don't necessarily know that that's perjury at this point because it hasn't gone to trial yet, but it seems inconsistent, right? Well, I would think it, at the bare minimum, I would think her attorneys are like, well, just say that you're trying to work it out with your husband. So right. that way you can... I mean, like yeah. things change, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Interesting, though, but in uh-huh. her appeal for bail, her lawyer suggests that she could stay with a friend in New York City, so she's not staying with her husband, even though they're supposedly having um, this loving, fabulous relationship, but she would be under 24-hour surveillance while awaiting for her July trial as she was released, um, but not with her spouse, again. Like, yeah. if you're so in love with your spouse and you're such a wonderful person in his eyes, then why are you not staying with him? Right. But um, her application will now be considered by U.S. District Attorney Judge Allison Nathan, who rejected a $5 million bail package from her back in July, agreeing with the government that she was an extreme flight risk. Yeah. So she's been living in a Brooklyn jail. This is interesting how they say the heiress has been living in a Brooklyn jail since July. Living That's just in where a Brooklyn she's jail. Like wintering. Like she's, you know, social, <laughs> like a socialite living in the jail. Like I'm wintering in the Brooklyn jail. Yeah. But she pled guilty to not, or excuse me, she pleaded not guilty to helping associate Jeffrey Epstein recruit and groom underage girls for sex in the mid-90s. The government also claimed in documents submitted to the U.S. District Court in Manhattan that new details about her finances um, did not bolster her case. So at first she was like, oh, I don't have a whole lot of money, blah, blah, blah. Now she suddenly has $22 million yeah. or access to $22 million, which is bizarre. But financial records show that Ms. Maxwell transferred vast sums to Mr. Borgerson after they married in 2016. Right. So So they say that this could have been legit is their this marriage been, in the first place. Right. But this they're they're saying that this was to protect her financially from yeah. claims against the Epstein victims. Yeah. So she married this guy just to transfer the money and to yeah. not get sued herself is what they're claiming. So the prosecution team alleged on Friday that her decision to move most of her assets to her husband showed her ability to hide her true wealth, whose size demonstrated she could actually afford to flee. So she like, F you to the $22 million, I'm out of here. That's not going to keep me. Wow. But one of her victims, Annie Farmer, filed a passionate letter in which she pleaded with the judge not to grant Miss Maxwell bail. I write this not only on behalf of myself, but for all the other girls and young women who were victimized by Maxwell, Miss Farmer writes. Ghislaine Maxwell sexually abused me as a child, and the government has a responsibility to make sure she stands trial for her crimes. Hmm. 
So I do not believe that will happen or that any of the women she exploited will see justice if she is released on bail. She has lived a life of privilege, abusing her position of power to live beyond the rules. Fleeing the country in order to escape one more time would fit with her long history of antisocial behavior. And, of course, Ms. Maxwell is denying all and any allegations at this point. But I just got the chills when I read that because it's true. It is true. That's been her whole life. And it seems as though there are many, many people in powerful positions that have done that. And Mm -hmm. I think the dam has kind of cracked a bit. And now, you know, I have another article that we're going to talk about as well that's semi-related to this. But once you start to see that crack in the dam, I think we're going to start to see a flood of similar cases like this where you've got these wealthy individuals who use that wealth, privilege, and power to get whatever they want and do whatever they want and they don't care about the damage that they've created for other people i hope so i hope we're starting to see some accountability in this kind of thing but it's just it's one of those things like i'll believe it when i see it you know right. what i mean like i don't want to get cynical but but so here's another one fashion retailer peter nygaard indicted on sex trafficking racketeering charges mm. so here's another powerful man This man, Peter Nygaard, the Canadian fashion retailer behind Nygaard International, and we don't talk about it that much here in the U.S. because it's not a big U.S. thing, but in Canada, this is a very, very large brand. This man is a very wealthy CEO slash owner, and he was arrested on Monday of this last week in Winnipeg by Canadian authorities at the request of the U.S. Under an extradition treaty, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan said on Tuesday, so they are really starting to crack down on this. And they're saying that according to the indictment papers, Nygaard used his employees, funds, and other resources to recruit and maintain adult and minor-aged female victims for sexual gratification and the sexual gratification of his friends and business associates over the course of 25 years. Mm. There were dozens of victims at locations in the United States, the Bahamas, and Canada. So he frequently targeted women and minor-aged girls who came from disadvantaged economic backgrounds. How much does this sound exactly like Epstein? Yeah and or people who had a history of abuse. He controlled his victims through threats, false promises of modeling opportunities and other career advancement, as well as financial support, and by coercive means, including constant surveillance, restrictions of movement, and physical isolation. You know who else it sounds like? Who? R. Oh, Kelly. Not even R. Kelly, too, but what's the other guy, the uh, the big movie guy? The, the, the got accused and he's in jail now god what's his name oh weinstein weinstein yeah is that him yeah yeah it just and let's see where did i leave off nygaard forcibly sexually assaulted some of his victims other victims were forcibly assaulted by nygaard's associates or drugged to ensure their compliance with his sexual demands he faces a total of nine counts racketeering conspiracy conspiracy to commit sex trafficking sex trafficking of a minor and by force fraud or coercion two counts of sex trafficking by force fraud or coercion transportation of a minor for the purposes of prostitution two counts of transportation for purposes of prostitution and transportation for the purposes of prostitution and illegal sexual activity this is crazy He launched his fashion company back in 1967 in Winnipeg, Canada, and stepped down as chairman of Nygaard International in February of this year, shortly after the FBI raided his New York offices. Whoa. 57 women have joined a class action lawsuit against him, accusing him of sexual assault, violence, intimidation, and bribery, and he has denied all allegations. But to me, I think it's a tip of the iceberg. Yeah. They're charging him with, you know, 10, 15 counts, but 25 years. Yeah. The, the number of women that had to have been influenced by this and touched by it and just wounded horribly has got to yeah. be in the thousands. Yeah, and I think I think this is going to be one of those things where you see the statute of limitations is going to probably limit how many charges he gets, but there's going to be accusations going back. But the thing is, he's in his 60s. They yeah. could get from for at least 20 years, and that's the rest of his life. Yeah. So, uh, and then I think we might as well start to begin to see uh, changes in the, the statute of limitations. I hope so. We, um, we have seen that already in some states. Yes. Um, it's starting to but come yeah. through. Yeah. But I think, you know, you've got Bill Cosby. You've got the... Yeah. So you've got the Harvey Weinstein case, or Weinstein or Weinstein, however you say it, case, where you've got him indicted on these charges as well. Mm-hmm. And you've got a lot of big names that are starting to get kicked down the line because they have done this for dozens of years where mm-hmm. they have 
just hundreds and thousands of victims that have been influenced by these people who had power and money and privilege and yep. used it to have basic sexual gratification from underage women and unwilling women. I mean, it's yeah. And, and that's a that's a I mean, I think we should just just to kind of CYA here. Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein are not accused of, to my knowledge, abusing any minors. Right. But it's but but using, the pattern is the same yeah. of using their 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 influence, promising them job opportunities, fame, wealth, what have right. you. And then, I mean, this, the, the pattern is and using drugs the same. Um, to yeah. coerce yeah. women into doing sexual things and giving them sexual favors. So it's, yeah. it's just gross. And I think that as these floodgates continue to open, we will continue to see these older cases that are just now being brought up because I think that there's less tolerance for this now, but you're still finding these cases from 20, 30 years ago where these mm -hmm. people did these awful, horrible, terrible things to these poor women and are now paying the price for it. Hopefully, we'll now have to pay the yeah, price for hopefully. it. It sucks that it's been 20 years after the fact and they've been able to live their lives freely and do whatever the hell they want for 20 years, but at the yeah. same time, I think some prosecution is better than nothing at all. Right. So Yeah, I would agree with that. Some interesting stuff going on in the news out there right now, for sure. Mm -hmm. We'll keep you guys posted as these uh, come down the pike and as they get into trial. Yes, definitely. So you want to jump into the main case for the day? Yeah, let's do it. So um, this is a case that has a kind of a link to, a possible link to the case we just released last week. Um, the Michelle Martinko case. So this is one I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, but hearing Sarah talk about the Michelle Martinko case and the possibility of a connection there is kind of what gave me the motivation to actually write this up and do this. So we're going to talk about Jody Husentrup. So Jody Husentrup was a local television news anchor in Mason City, Iowa, who went missing under very mysterious circumstances back in 1995 and if you've ever seen that show in the, on investigation discovery called disappeared this one and like the maura murray episodes are like the two i remember the most from like when that show first came out you remember oh, yeah. that show yeah that's good stuff so it's always been one of those that i've always followed and like go back to every now and then to like see for updates but um Jody was born and raised in Minnesota by her parents, Maurice and Jane. And after graduating from high school, Jody went on to St. Cloud State University, which is in St. Cloud, Minnesota, to study mass communications and speech communication. And her first job was in broadcasting in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is the, you know, the possible link to Michelle Martinko, because Michelle Martinko was murdered in Cedar Rapids. Right. Um, and she and Jody served as the Iowa City Bureau Chief in Cedar Rapids, and then she moved back up to Minnesota before she ultimately returned to Iowa. This time for the CBS affiliate in Mason City. So this was the '90s. Yeah, this is 1995. Okay, so mid '90s. Yep. And so on June 26, 1995, Jody anchored the morning news broadcast, and then she spent the rest of the day participating in a golf fund fundraiser. Have and you seen video of her as a newscaster? Yes. Just yeah. really, I like, love her accent. Yeah, she's so funny and just lovely mm -hmm. as a person. Just seems very genuine and bubbly mm -hmm. and just nice and friendly. Like she's not one of those annoying newscasters where you just want to punch him in the face. She's awesome. It's just yeah, she's she's not too bubbly for like the morning. Like she's like she just has this. She strikes the right tone for like you're just waking up and she's not like too excited and everything but yeah. like she's also helps you wake up kind of a thing yeah and and her accent is awesome i love it um minnesota so jody was uh, yeah jody was a uh, an accomplished golfer when she was in high school oh, wow. and so while this was technically a work event this fundraiser she was also really doing something that she really enjoyed she really liked playing golf and so she had a long day at the golf tournament, and then there was an award dinner that followed. And she ends up leaving at, like, the country club or the lodge or wherever this was held. She ends up leaving around 8 p.m. Okay. And since Jody was the morning news anchor, she had to be at work the next morning at, like, 2.30. Oh, my God. That's so, so brutal. Yeah. That had to have been right? so brutal. So to prepare for the 6 a.m. broadcast. So... Um, she typically went home early, went to bed early to make sure she, you know, made her 2.30 a.m. call. But when Jody hadn't arrived the next morning by 4 a.m., her assistant producer, Amy, called to make sure that she was still coming in. And 
Amy's done a couple interviews uh, since since then, and she says that it was very clear that she, when she called that she woke Jody up. That Jody was like, "Oh my gosh, I overslept. I'll be right in." And this wasn't unusual. Jody missed or was late to work about once a week. Um, but they kind of had like a deal, like they would call each other if one of them was late and then they would come in. And, and since Jody lived only like a mile from the station, it didn't take very long. Right. And usually when this happened, you know, Jody would be into the station at like tw- in, within 20 minutes. I think people can understand the brutality of having <laughs> have that kind of a schedule. Ugh. Yeah, it's rough. I know, cause especially having to work all day at this other work event until 8 p.m. Like, yeah. that's long. Yeah. So um, the same interview, Jody sa- uh, Amy says that she called Jody twice that morning. So she calls her the first time that she woke up, that she woke Jody up. And the second time, she says the phone just rang and rang and rang. Hmm. So she's probably assuming that Jody's already left and she's on her way. Okay, so right? just keep in mind as well, we're not talking cell phones at this time. We're talking right, just these are landlines. home landline. So... Usually it's either an answer machine, it'll just ring and ring and ring and ring. So Right. So on June 27th, though, 1995, the morning we're talking about, Jody actually never made it into work. And by the time 6 a.m. rolls around, it's time to do the broadcast. So Amy ends up filling in for her seat on the morning broadcast. And when they finish the broadcast at 7, Amy has somebody else at the station call the Mason City Police just to do a welfare check. Right. Okay, because it's just unusual. She woke her up at, at a little after four, and then she never made it into work. So when police arrived at the apartment, what they found was pretty concerning. Nothing was out of place in the apartment, but in the parking lot, they found Jody's car, which was a new red Mazda Miata, and the key was lying on the ground nearby, the car key, but it was bent. Oh, so it was like she had maybe put the key in the lock and then somebody grabbed, grabbed her, her, did something, and, and bent the wow. key. Okay. I never yeah. heard that part. Yeah. They also found a pair of heels and a blow dryer on the ground. So I'm kind of thinking, you know, you don't necessarily, you may not want to drive in heels. Maybe she's wearing flats or something. So she has heels and, and a blow dryer in the bag and she's going to finish getting ready at, wor- yeah. at work. Yeah. Kind of a thing, you know, is what I would be thinking. So especially because she was leaving the house in a hurry. So there were also drag marks on the pavement. Oh. And, like, it was kind of, like, muddy, and there were drag marks. And um, neighbors reported hearing a scream between 4 and 5 a.m. And oh. somebody else who did not live at the apartment complex but was driving past the complex on his way to work that morning reported seeing a white van with its lights on and the engine running in the parking lot around the same time. Hmm. And police also recovered a partial palm print from the roof of her car. Because it's a Mazda Miata, so it's a short, very short car. Right, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, it could have been from, you know, if it's a new car, it could have been on display. Anybody could have walked by and left that. I mean. Right. So that's all we know. Jody has been missing ever since that morning, June 27th, 1995. Wow. And again, but, it's a parking lot kind of a situation like March- yeah. Michelle Martinko. Yep, exactly. And But that's not all the information that we actually have about the situation. Oh. So okay. while Mason City Police were in the apartment complex in the parking lot examining the scene, a man named John Van Sice arrives and tells police that he's the last person to see her. So he shows up at the apartment Nobody's just nobody knows random. what happened to Jody. Nobody knows that she's missing. They're examining the situation. Yeah. And he says, I was the last person to see her. That's creepy. That's weird. And right? who is this guy? So he is a friend of hers. He's considerably older, but he says that after leaving the golf fundraiser, Jody went to his house to watch a video of a surprise party that he had just recently thrown for her for her 27th birthday. Uh, for Jody. So he had so like somebody had a like a party. camcorder. Okay. Somebody had like a camcorder of her surprise party, and she went to watch it. Interesting. And the weekend before Jody's disappearance, he took Jody and some of her friends water skiing in Iowa City, and he also named his boat after her. Ew. So right is was is there some thought that maybe he had some kind of romantic inclinations toward her that were sort of unrequited? I mean, that's obviously what everybody's thinking, I think. But we just, there's just not a lot of information in terms of 
what's been investigated or is they haven't made very very much public what's been investigated so i think in the michelle martinko episode this is the guy i was referring to when i said they think the producer did it yeah because i was like oh they think it was the producer he's not a producer he was just a friend so that was an incorrect statement on Hmm. my part so i want to correct that okay so i don't have a boat you know um but if i did i'm pretty sure i wouldn't just name it after a friend that's weird. Um, so something seems up with this guy. And he's considerably older. He's about 20 years older than Jody, which I think I said earlier. So that's the first weird thing. Um, and back in 95, when he shows up to the scene and admits that he's the last person to see Jody, the police are obviously pretty interested in interviewing him. So he's interviewed and polygraphed, but we don't know the results of the interview or the polygraph he says that he passed the police polygraph but that's his statement you know Hmm. so it's really kind of hard to piece together information from this point forward and kind of how it all ties in but there is some there is information still out there so According to two golfers that were at this charity event that Jody was at the day before, Jody was planning to change her number the next day, her so the day that she number. went missing. Yeah, her phone number. Huh. Because she'd been getting some pestering phone calls. Interesting. And the golfers say she wasn't really concerned about the nature of the calls. She just kind of seemed like it was like something that goes with the territory when you're in a small city and you're on TV and people know who you are. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Yeah. But like... The thing about that is, again, we're talking about a landline. So somebody found your landline phone number, which means they found where you live. Yeah. That's so creepy. Right. So I don't know. But she also told, which I thought this was really interesting, she told one of the golfers that Jody said she was going straight home because she had to be at work the next morning. So she doesn't mention anything to this other golfer about going to John Van Sice's house. Oh. Right? And so I don't know if that's just... She just didn't or, want to tell this random person or that. Or maybe it was or, a last-minute decision. I mean, maybe right. she hadn't planned on it, and then... Right. But then he would. she didn't have a cell phone, so how would... Hmm. I mean, and maybe she just, like, didn't... She didn't know this other golfer very well, so she wasn't going to be like, yeah, I'm going to a friend's house. And, like, maybe she just was like... I mean, who knows? Maybe she was just trying to get out of a conversation with the guy. You know what I mean? Like, don't know, but it's weird that she doesn't say that she's going to go to his house, and then he shows up. And says, oh, yeah, she was at my house last night. Yeah. So it's kind of hinky. Yeah. And so the other thing is back in January, in October of 1994, Jody contacted the Mason City Police because she was being followed. So she was out for a jog and she notices this white truck is following her. And why is it always a didn't... white vehicle? <laughs> it's <Right>? so <laughs> like, stereotypical. <laughs> and, and she does. They never identified the white truck. They never identified the driver. The driver was gone by the time the police officer responded. So there, we don't know anything else about the situation. But Jody did ask the responding officer for like some tips to protect herself. Like she started carrying mace and she started taking some self defense classes. Right. So she's like actively taking an interest in like making sure she's safe. Yeah. Because she is a known person in this small town. Yeah. Right. Um, and she did mention it to a couple other people in terms of it, that it freaked her out. But the interviews I saw with these people when they were asked about this, they kind of didn't really put anything to it. They were like, yeah, she mentioned it, but I don't really know. We never found out anything more about it. So, And this is, you know, the know. mid-90s. So I think there was a little bit more of kind of a sense of innocence and maybe naivete when it's right. when true crime, as far as that was concerned. Um, especially in small towns. And I think people, I think, tended to think, because I come from a small town, and I'm saying this, I'm coming from this in a place of knowledge because that's where I grew up, and I grew up in a very, very small town. None of us ever thought about criminal activities or thought that we would be the victim of something like that because when you live in a small town, it's very insulated, and everybody knows everybody else, and you you walk by, you say hi to people, and people are constantly driving by, and hey, how's it going, so-and-so. You don't tend to think in terms of, I need to be cautious, I need to be careful as I'm going to my car. You're not looking over your shoulder, you're not examining your surroundings in that kind of a situation because you don't think in those terms when you come from a small town. 
Exactly. And the small, I mean, I grew up in a suburb of Birmingham, which Birmingham is a big city, but my suburb was very, very small, very insular, um, upper middle class kind of a thing. And so walking around my, my suburb town, it was the same situation. You didn't feel unsafe. You didn't worry. Like you didn't look over your, over your shoulder and like, be like, oh, that car has been following me for a little while. Like you just didn't do those things. Now contrast that with, I went to dinner with my friend in downtown Birmingham last night and I had to park because it's downtown. I had to park kind of like a little, a little ways away. And by the time we finished dinner, you know, um, we w- both walked to her car and then she drove me to my car. Cause it's like one of those things where it's like, it's dark. It, where I was parked was kind of isolated. Like you, you do those, you take those protective measures when you know you're in a situation, like when you're in a downtown Birmingham, but not when you're in a small town. No. Kind of a thing. So it's just an interesting, very interesting dichotomy. So, like I said, the truck, neither the truck nor the driver have been identified, and we don't know anything more about them. It doesn't appear that anybody came forward to say that, oh, that was me, it was a misunderstanding. There's just no information. Yeah. So. In September of 1995, so this is a couple months after Jody went missing, her family hired some private investigators, and they ended up meeting with a lot of psychics. And that makes me so sad because I just feel like there's so many people out there that just want to take advantage of families that just want answers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and that was also and big I, in the 90s, like seeing oh, a psychic yeah. for true crime cases. And you had like Sylvia Brown and some of the other people that really, I think, capitalized on the fact that forensic evidence and DNA evidence and things like that weren't really available yeah. back then. And so the, what were the options? It's not like you right. have this huge, you know, tool chest of scientific methods and tools to help solve your case back then. You had fingerprints, right. you had blood type, that was it. And I mean, there the, no surveillance there's even cameras. less information. Yeah. There's even less options available to the family members. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, if you're just looking for something, and it just makes me so sad because there are just people out there that are willing to take advantage. And and I don't know that that's what happened in this case, but it doesn't. There there's no um, evidence that what, that the psychics provided any valuable information. You know, so I just I, do you know what I the just, psychic said? No, I don't know what they said. That's interesting. Um, they met with a with a few, but um, the private investigators they hired, they did these investigators did go on unsolved mysteries in America's Most Wanted seeking some new information and they got a lot of leads which i think always happens whenever one of those cases airs yeah but nothing resulted in any any concrete evidence Hmm. so they just still don't know anything beyond what they found in that parking lot so jody hughes and true was declared legally dead in may 2001 and no suspects have been named in her disappearance interesting and then yeah, you have so, this case, this Michelle Martinko case, where you've got Jerry Burns, who yeah. has an interview with police, and randomly Jody's name pops out of his mouth. Right. And so it's interesting because, I mean, for every, especially as the John Van Sice guy sounds, he's not been officially named a suspect, which leads me to believe he did pass his police polygraph. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? If, if he failed, they would at least say he's a person of interest yeah. or we're keeping an eye on him or something, yeah. but there's just nothing. So there have been a couple updates since this May 2001 uh, declaration of, of Jody's death. And in 2008, some photocopies of Jody's journal, like her handwritten personal journal, were anonymously mailed to a local newspaper. What? Who has the journal? Well, the newspaper turned that over to the Mason City Police and come to find out the sender was the wife of a former Mason City Police Chief. What? The police chief took copies of the journal home when he left the when he left uh, the Why? job when he retired. That's highly illegal. It yeah, and they have no idea why he took them home or why his wife anonymously sent them to the newspaper. It didn't contain any information that was like that led to anything. It just kind of when the newspaper got it, they thought it was probably a taunt from the killer, kind of a thing. Yeah, but it and it's just not some sort of police involvement. Yeah, yeah, and so. I'm glad you said that because in 2017, a retiring state representative in Iowa wrote in his like kind of farewell, what this is why I'm not seeking re-election letter. He wrote of his efforts to have Mason City recognize a Jody who's in true day to honor her memory and solicit new information. Okay. And this request was turned down 
and he believes that it's because the Mason City Police Department is withholding or refusing to investigate new leads that came in around 2008. Interesting. And he doesn't say what these new leads are. That is the same time as the journal was submitted, you know, but he doesn't say what they are for to protect the integrity of the investigation, but he is very clearly alleging that someone inside the police department is working against the investigation into Jody's disappearance and death. He's not saying any, anybody in the police department was involved, but that he is alleging a cover-up. Huh. Interesting. And they obviously deny that, and they say, like, he's just trying to insert politics into this investigation. We have no new information, blah, blah, blah. Like, they just, so. But there's a lot of Reddit kind of threads yeah. when it comes to this case. And, I mean, I hate to keep coming back to this but this is jerry burns's mo like he likes to grab girls in dark areas as they're getting into their cars he likes those blonde haired young cute ladies this very well could have been something that he did i I mean i hate to keep going back to that but one case in what 30 40 years for jerry burns i have a very right. very hard time believing that someone who does something like that would only do it once in 40 years and never do it again and that would be the only case right and in 2017 a search warrant was issued for john van Sice's car so they were looking for gps uh data for two of his vehicles and there's no information on what that GPS data gave the police. So they were just looking there, to see where he had gone within. If a maybe he was like frame. going to visit a dump site or something, if he would lead them to her, basically. Interesting. Um, th- so there's, there's some no, speculation that this gentleman, who is not necessarily a suspect, right, did something. They're keeping an eye on him. Maybe barely, he made a romantic move toward her or a gesture yeah. and she declined and he killed her. But the right. thing is, she disappeared at four in the morning. She answered her phone and you know what I mean? So yeah. was it a thing of he had made a move towards her, you know, the previous evening and she declined him or rebuffed right. him and he was mad and took it out on her the following day? I mean, that is a little bit more difficult to believe. That speaks yeah. to me more of, I planned this, I stalked this person, I determined that I was going to have them, at regardless of the cost, rather than, I made a romantic gesture, she declined, and I'm pissed, and I killed her. You know what I mean? There's a, I a think, difference there. I think both can be true, though, because I think that maybe if he did make a romantic move toward her... She rejected him. He very well could have sat and stewed with this all night and went and sat outside of her apartment complex. He could have been the van. Right. But it does speak yeah. to someone who knew her schedule, who knew yeah. you know, when she was going to be doing things to be able yeah. to plan something like that. Right. And the only reason we know there was a van there is because she overslept. I mean, if she had actually made her 2.30 a.m. call, we may, I mean, the, maybe the van wasn't there or maybe... You know, maybe nobody would have seen this van or heard the screams or anything, you know. I mean, we, we just don't know. So they haven't released what information they got from the GPS data on his vehicles. It, it They have kind of hinted that it didn't lead to any new information. And those warrants have actually been sealed for at least another year. Hmm. So we don't actually know what the warrants say. So I think that is pretty interesting. Right. But I feel finally, like this case is about to get cracked wide open, though. I hope so. So... On what would have been Jody's 50th birthday on June 5th, 2018, four, billboard, four billboards were put up in Mason City by the FindJody.com team. This is a, a group of investigators and reporters who have taken a vested interest in putting information out there about Jody. And they had this website and they're continuing to investigate this, you know, kind of outside of police investigation. And they were inspired by that movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, oh, Ebbing uh, Missouri. Yeah. Um, which is also actually based on another true story about Texas murder. But um, so they put these billboards up and these billboards have a picture of Jody and say, someone knows something. Is it you? And it has the, the findjody.com address at the bottom. Hmm. And sometime either in late December 2019 or early January 2020, somebody vandalized one of these billboards. Okay. And they spray painted the name of a Mason City police investigator 
followed by the words machine shed. What? So the findjody.com team says there's no known connection between this investigator. He worked on Jody's case, but he's since retired. But they say there's no known, there's no known connection between this guy and her disappearance, or they don't think anything nefarious is going on. So they kind of blurred out his name from the billboard, and I'm not going to use his name. But right. um, somebody put it up there and with the words machine shed, and nobody knows what it means. Um, and then finally... Like we've been kind of hinting at, and we talked about last week during the investigation of the during the interrogation of Jerry Burns, who was convicted of murdering Michelle Martinko. Apparently, uns- completely unsolicited, Jerry brings up Jody's case, mm-hmm. and there are some similarities in this case. Michelle was murdered in a parking lot in Cedar Rapids, and Jody was abducted from a parking lot in Mason City. And Jody had previously worked for a news network in Cedar Rapids, so it's very possible somebody knew her from Cedar Rapids. Yeah, and. According to the 48 Hours episode that aired on Michelle Martinko's case, they say that, that, quote, there is no known DNA evidence tying Burns to the Husentroop case and no evidence that he knew Jody Husentroop. Mason City Police will not disclose whether or not they are now looking at Jerry Burns as a suspect in the case. So that's kind of... Hmm. So they're not saying, they may be, but they're not saying, but it doesn't sound like they really think that he's involved. Well, I guess he was about two hours... Like, he resided about two hours from where this Right. It would happened. take a lot of planning to do that at 4 a.m. Yeah. Especially yeah. if he has a family with a wife and kids. Right. But, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily put it out of the realm of possibility for the reasons re- that I spoke to earlier. There's a reason he brought it up. Yeah. You know, was he just trying to get attention or does he actually know something? And, and we don't know those reasons yet. But Like, why would you bring it up? Why? Yeah. What would be the point? I mean, maybe he's one of those guys that just, like, maybe he's like a um, Henry Lee Lucas, you know, just wanting to brag about cases that he had nothing to do with. But why that one? I mean. I don't know. It's interesting. And It's very interesting. I know that when they were looking at his phone later, Mr. Jerry Burns, they found a lot of murder, rape-related porn and all kinds of other stuff related to murders, rapes, whatnot of mm. blonde women that looked very similar to Michelle and Jody. So perhaps he saw the case in the news because he was looking for information about his own case because they often say that killers will mm. scan the news to see if the mm-hmm. media has covered their case and maybe that case came up and it interested him. It excuse me, it interested him because he thought that perhaps, you know, it was hot to him. He got right. some kind of sexual yeah. gratification out of that because he was into, you know, right. strangulation, murder, stabbing women in parking lot, blonde women in parking lots. So maybe right. that came up as something that was interesting to him and that gave him some sort of sexual gratification. Who who knows? Yeah. yeah. So it's entirely possible that he has nothing to do with it or he has a lot of information. I mean, we just don't know. But, but like you said, I do think and I'm really hopeful that this case is going to be solved soon. I personally think the friend had something to do with it. It's weird to me that he just showed up when they were looking for her. Yeah. I don't know. He seems shady. He definitely Yeah, and shady. the fact that he seemed, he clearly seemed to have some kind of interest in her other than just being a friend. I don't think you name a boat after somebody if you're just, like, no. buddies. I mean, I think worst case scenario, he was obsessed with her, wanted her. She didn't want to give in yeah. to him, and he got pissed and killed her. Yeah. I mean, it, that's what seems to be the case and circumstance. I mean, I hate to to chuckle about it because it's very sad and and awful, but, but it's so common that it's just, it's very rare that cases like this is a random person grabbing them. Usually it's somebody that knows them. And I think it's pretty clear that the police believe it was somebody that knows her. Um, And there's been interviews with the assistant producer and with Jody's sister, and they all kind of hint that they think they know who's involved, but they they don't say who. They all just kind of say, I think, you know, I have an idea of who I think did it, and my friends, my colleagues all agree. They, You know, we kind of all think it was the same person, but they don't say who it is. Why are so. they so reticent to 
you know, not mention the person's name. Like, to, I'm not sure. To hide the person's I, name. Is it because they feel like there's some sort of liability that they would potentially slander or libel or whatever by mentioning the, writing this person's name in the media? Or the police or, have told them it's going to affect the investigation or something. So the don't police say maybe anything. have told them to not say anything. I don't know. Um, is the police officer with the machine shed thing, is his name in the media and you just choose not to say it? Or did they block it out and redact it? The Find Jody website blocked it out. There's other news reports that do have his name. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, very. But there's no indication from anything that I've seen that this person is tied in any way other than being a former investigator who worked on the case. And besides the shoes and the blow dryer and whatnot, there was no DNA, no hair fibers, no nothing besides the palm print at the scene of the crime. I believe I read they found a hair, but they've not identified it yet. So they don't, I don't. I don't know if they think it's Jody's or if they think it was somebody who's involved. I don't know. Interesting. So that's it. That's all there is to the Jody who's in true case. And it's so sad and it's so scary because, I mean, she she clearly was. She had concerns about her safety, being a single woman, walking, living alone, walking and to her car at 2.30 yeah. in the morning. I mean, so she was doing things to take care of herself and she had started, you know, taking these protection classes, self-defense classes and things like that. And it was just, it, it means somebody just like an ambush is what they think happened. It's so, so crazy. Yeah. A sad case. And I hope that we find a resolution to it soon, but yeah. Crazy. So yep. we'll go ahead and wrap so the we'll episode put, up. And for, we'll put like the references and all of that. And I will also link to the Find Jody website so you can look through everything they have there um i've heard a lot and, of podcasts about this too and i think yeah. it's one of those things where if enough people get their hands on it and their eyes on it i think it's gonna crack open yeah so all right yep go ahead and wrap the case up for the day yeah um please rate review and subscribe if you feel so inclined we love hearing from you guys as well via email so if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can certainly send us an email we're at the bfd podcast at gmail.com we will also drop that into the show notes um send us an email if you have a show suggestion if you have a correction for us if you found some information on this jody who's in troop case that we haven't talked about on the show please feel free to shoot us an email and we'll talk about it on the show for sure and our social Absolutely. media darcy yeah we are at the bfd podcast on both twitter and instagram so we'll post our resources there too and you can reach out to us there as well yeah please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild cases good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.